Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the International Sonography Podcast. We are continuing with our final part four of our interview with Joan Baker, and let's get right into it. So going back to 1980, there was the Congressional Randolph Act. Could you explain to the audience how that affected the occupation of medical ultrasound? And did the SDMS see it as an attempt by the American Society of Radiologic Technologists to gain control of all imaging modalities at that time? which was part of the famous President Reagan budget bill. It was signed into law in 1980 by President Reagan. Once a bill is signed into law, it can't be changed. But what does get changed are the rules or the regulations that come from the implementation of the bill. I think the most disturbing thing about this issue was that it was done in secret, and the SDMS knew nothing of what was going on related to this until after it was signed. And that was the one thing that made SDMS far more involved in legislative issues after that had happened. And yes, it was done by the American Society of Radiologic Technology with the help from the ACR, American College of Radiology, to gain control of the imaging modality at the time. In other words, it was just the turf wars revisited. There was a legal battle for sonography to be excluded from the Randolph bill. Was Who was Louise Berlin, and how did the two of you fight this legislation? Well, what we needed to was to be um, excluded from the Randolph bill was the language referring to non-ionizing radiation, as this was the phrase uh, that had scooped ultrasound essentially into it. But this affected others, particularly those who were performing MRI scanning, as this was also a non-ionizing radiation source. The ARDMS felt that this was uh, threatening to them, and it was to the SDMS. So the Louise Berlin was the chairman of the registry at the time, in 1980, when this came up. And Louise represented the ARDMS, and I represented the SDMS, and we hired a lawyer by the name of Kim Zeitlin, to help us get through this challenge. And we succeeded in getting non-ionizing removed from the regulation, but it took five years. But we were successful, and that is how we were excluded from the Randolph Act. Can you tell those of us who don't know about the CARE Bill how it presented a similar dilemma for sonography and what the outcome was of the CARE Bill legislation? The CARE Bill was essentially another name for the um, Radiation Safety Act. One of the ways of uh, bringing licensure as a requirement would be to have the situation where the safety of the public was at risk. When people who were not licensed performed this test, um, this ultrasound test, you need to be able to prove a bad outcome. However, licensure is a state-by-state issue, not a federal issue. And so in order to have any legislation like the CARE Bill, you had to have, um, in effect, nationwide, you had to tie the study to money. In other words, reimbursement. So Medicare or Medicaid, if they, if they say that they will not reimburse a non-certified sonographer, 
then it would be essentially have made it a requirement for all sonographers to be certified in order to for the institution to be paid and obviously hospitals and clinics and doctors offices are not going to work for nothing so this was a way of interfering at the federal level with a state uh, type of manipulation as far as the outcome of the care bill legislation i think there were uh, are others in the sdms who are far better qualified than I am to, to answer this question. I was very involved in the, in the beginning, in 1980, with the Randolph Act, and I was involved early on in the care bill, but not as it progressed. So in 1998, Don Hayden took over as the Chief Executive Officer of the SDMS. You know Don well. Can you tell us what set him apart from the other 99 applicants for that position? Well, we had hired an agency to help us select a person to take over from um, Gwen Grimm, who'd been our only program, um, our only executive. Prior to that, we hadn't. She was it, and she, we had had her her um, expertise for many years, and it was very sad to see her um, retire from SDMS. Um, and so we got we hired this company to help us uh, find an executive director and Don Hayden was one of quite a few candidates and um it wasn't uh it wasn't a slam dunk it wasn't a unanimous easy type of thing but he was very knowledgeable in both the legal arena in the legislative arena he was willing to live in Dallas which wasn't everybody's choice mm -hmm. I think that they almost all executives directors are from the Washington DC area and, and live in that area and SDMS had no desire to move mm -hmm. and so um, and you know lose the whole staff and have to start over which is what the ARDMS did but we weren't willing to do it but um, and Don was the candidate who got the most votes um, to become our new executive director. He had a very outstanding resume and we had a large number of candidates to choose from. The company did a very good job of bringing highly qualified people to us. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the runner-up for that position actually ended up joining the SDMS staff. So, um, and she came from the uh, emergency room physicians. Mm. So um, these were highly qualified people and we, used all their skills in the or we have used I think all of Don Hayden's skills he was there for quite a few years before he himself retired so mm -hmm. and he and I I only had half of my term with him as the uh, head of the um, SDMS staff mm -hmm. um, the second half and it almost started before he his job started because there were things going on that um, uh, the previous executive director had already left. It was kind of a, a gap. Mm -hmm. And doing running an organization of that size from remotely from Seattle, I was very close to getting on a plane and moving for a while down to Dallas. To Dallas. Uh -huh. I don't know what stopped me. I think it was the heat. But um, <laughs> anyway. So he helped with, with, with being able to relocate. Oh, yes. And there. so uh, Don... Um, I bounce, I bounce things off Don before he was officially working for us. <laughs> Maybe testing him. 
<laughs> I guess, yes. Well, we were involved in a legal suit actually at the time. It was the first time the SGMS had ever been legally involved. Mm. So it was kind of a difficult time. Mm -hmm. And so. What do you think about the idea in the future of sonographers becoming more independent from the physician and having that advanced practice sonography title where they not only perform the exams but read the exams independent of a physician in the clinic? There are sonographers that have functioned at a higher level than others, but either because they probably because they wanted to and the opportunity presented itself or they made sure that they presented themselves to employers that would employ them with that type of responsibility. And they took that responsibility on willingly. What a sonographer needed more than anything was a knowledge of medicine because that's what we lack, yeah. and, and certainly pharmacology. Mm -hmm. um, and so it depends then on what role this practitioner is going to play. It, and that would have to get worked out like it did in, in the beginning. What, where are the board certifications and what is the actual job description of this person and what are their responsibilities and what's their um, scope of practice and so on. And then I think they would be better off going through the nurse practitioner or the medic one, which was started here in Seattle mm -hmm. from the corpsman, mm -hmm. um, and go with that organization and, and that um, uh, creation of the occupation that way rather than through, should we say, what well, STMS is a, is a member organization, but or the ARDMS, not saying that they could not become involved, and but they would be better to send people to that because of the education on the pharmacology side and well, not so much for the education, but for the process okay. and the level of um, uh, uh, government approval or acceptance of them as as an um, as a a job rather than as a ladder that you climb within sonography yes. at, you can climb to the point of that and then you go off to one of those institutions that define nurse practitioners because they come out in different fields I mean orthopedic surgery cardiology and I was amazed in the last two years how many of those people there are this is tremendous. Now there's almost every large practice, which there is a tendency to, for practices to become very large now. And some of them have two or three mm -hmm. um, nurse practitioners, nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. or um, uh, what's the other name for them? Um, physician's yeah. assistants, yeah. yes. And the actual role that they play is probably dictated by the practice that they work for, mm -hmm. how much responsibility they want to give to that person. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's great. And I think as a as a, a way to move up the career ladder, it's fine. It's just who does it. Mm -hmm. And I think you're better off aligning yourself with an organization that's doing a similar thing mm -hmm. because of all the politi politics involved in it. Instead of trying to create trying that. To, trying to create it within your own okay. organization. So what do, you, do you think that this, that the, do you think that that's ever going to go anywhere, that... Does this proposal well, been out there for a decade or so? Or? Will, will it 
I don't think it will unless it's put in the right hands mm -hmm. and it's got the driving force because the cost of, of doing it, 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 you know, the meeting costs and, the, and, and all that are significant. And how many of your society of, say, 50 are going to even want it? Yes. And can you justify diverting the dues that everybody pays to the advancement of a handful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in comparison? For sure. I mean, if you have 50,000 members of SDMS, would 1,000 become practitioners? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. So... Uh, and it will take, I mean, to, to form, form this is bigger than you, you think, mm -hmm. um, as it was with the ASUTS. I mean, it started with six, but that was because it was fortunate to start then. Yeah. If it had waited mm -hmm. and waited till there was a few thousand, it would have been much harder to, to do mm -hmm. because you're not as flexible and there's more expectations yeah, on you. Spread out yeah. yeah. And so... I, I think it would be good to go in that direction. When they started to talk about possibly, um, and this is where the future of ultrasound probably go, it, it, contrast agents, mm -hmm. then you get into a contrast agent that actually has medicine attached to the molecule. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about the ultrasound beam vibrating and bursting that cell and treating that lesion that the ultrasound is depicting. Well, now you're crossing some real big lines because you're... Get into side effects. Yes, well, and you're dumping a chemo agent mm -hmm. into a tumor, mm -hmm. and you're a sonographer. Now, some people say, yeah, bring it on. And others will say, I won't any part of that. Mm -hmm. They didn't even want to put the needle in that put the... You IV. Know, IV I mean, yeah, going. Yeah. So you've got... Um, I didn't go into the field for that sort mm -hmm. of argument. Mm -hmm. And so this is, starts to bring up all these issues of how do you define what an advanced practice sonographer would be because usually you think of somebody being having um, a core or gen, you know, uh, base and then branching out in whatever direction they want to. Um, and I think that's what happens now with the nurse practitioner. They align themselves with one of the specialties and they do that clinically. But we've done our clinical part and we now need the medical part that we don't have mm -hmm. and um, the scope that we don't have. So it, there's an awful lot of water to go under the bridge. We've spent all this time, but I'm not sure we've got very far, except to say that we know that it's got to be a master's level. Mm -hmm. um, when I think that's a given, mm -hmm. minimum. Is it a PhD level? Probably not. Um, it could be if it wanted to be, but it wouldn't be a minimum. Mm -hmm. So who knows? It takes the, the right people with the right energy and that to go after it. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't go to SDMS with it mm -hmm. myself. I would yeah. go to the industry that already exists. Because a, a nurse practitioner organization would probably welcome another thousand or more people doing what they're doing more so than an independent never been there group would would welcome another thousand when they've already got 50 yeah yeah, yeah. it's a game of numbers 
So uh, what about, um, what are the things that you think that need to be done to keep pushing ergonomics and um, job-related injury to the top? Well, you know, in in uh, the other countries that we were part of the consensus conference was Australia and Canada and uh, the UK. And they all work on a sort of socialized medicine system. So you know where you can go in the hierarchy of medicine in those countries if you can get something passed that is becomes law in not necessarily a court of law but required standards. yes standards um, then you affect the whole nation in America it's hospital one at a time and there's no single place there is this OSHA and OSHA has a clause, a general duty clause, which the lawyers use. But, you know, to me, addressing something by when you've already done the damage is not really what you want to be doing. You want to be preventing it. So how do you force somebody to buy something? You can't. Yeah. And um, architects start by making the ultrasound rooms too small. They... The architectural uh, plan is for a room that's probably five feet too small in both directions. Mm -hmm. um, it, you mean to give you an ability to move the machine yes, in different positions? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's very dependent on how multi-purpose the room is going to be. I mean, how many buildings get built and they can't get the bed through the door? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's... Uh, yes, yeah. No. You know, so it, it starts right when the building's Absolutely. built. Yeah. And um, when we were first in ultrasound, you know, we had a broom closet mm -hmm. because nobody planned on having us. But <laughs> most of us are planned now, yes. and it's time to move up yes. from the size of a broom closet. Yeah. They've now added that you have to have a sink in the room. Yes. So now you've got a sink, you've got a cupboard, and you've taken away another few feet but you haven't put them back in the room by increasing the room size. You've just found a place to put the sink. And, I, you know, this is one hospital at a time is very frustrating sure. and there is no single place to go and say, this needs to be changed. Yeah. Also manufacturers, they don't have to jump through any hoops to ensure that they're not going to injure the operator of the equipment they've designed. Yeah. Um, there, is, there are agencies that, and they have to put their equipment up for testing of electrical leaks and all these types for of sure. things and images and so on, mm -hmm. but nowhere is there an ergonomic requirement. Yes. And I think there should, there should be. be. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think the manufacturers have gone further to try and help this situation than anybody else. Absolutely. So we haven't done, you know, we've put old, we've put ergonomics into the JRC DMS curriculum. Some students get uh, um, half an hour. Mm -hmm. Some students get three hours. Some students get ad nauseum reminders about it. Um, so it, it's very varied, you know. Yeah. But until you then translate that into questions on the credentialing exam Absolutely. and enough of them mm -hmm. 
to make a difference. I mean, if you only have one question or two, you know, you you, you could skip the you question and, uh, and yeah, and, and not... <laughs> Educated guesses. Yeah, but, but you could miss the question and, and not... Yeah, and pass the words. Yes, yeah, of course. Sure. I don't think you could ever have it yeah. that, but it's got to be significant enough that the student feels a need to study it, Yes. to go into the exam. Yes. Well, I think that comes from also their their future, you know, professionals coming in and saying, I, I'm, use me as an example of somebody that didn't do it until they were injured and now is trying to, per, you yes, know, to prolong my career, clock, right? yeah, or, or, or just make it last as long as it can using all these physical therapy and tools um, now that I'm injured. So it takes them going mm-hmm. probably, and, and I, I appreciate you guys educating not only sonographers or soon-to-be sonographers, but also physicians, because I feel like mm-hmm. if we keep educating the people that make the rules that build the architecture, that's when you're going to start seeing the difference down the, you know, down the road. So. Yeah, it's just unfortunate in the American model, mm-hmm. unless it's required, yeah. it isn't done. Yeah. It somehow has to be mandated yeah. by some agency that is respected. Mm-hmm. That's a tall order. This is just more of a personal question because this is something that's always in the back of my mind. Yeah. And I know Marvine Craig wrote a book on patient care and sonography, yes. which was kind of like an, an, uh, uh, a little guide to go through. Mm-hmm. A lot of that talks about the legal and ethical things mm-hmm. that you can do in sonography to keep yourself from being a liability, sure. um, to be a better sonographer. Do you think mm, as technology improves and there's less calculation of physics and, and hand calculating mm-hmm. like that, that you guys had to do, that some of that curriculum could be focused on how to be a better, how to give better patient care, and in that mm-hmm. education about patient care, ergonomics being put in as a sonographer for safety, you know, prevention type of education. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is you look at the field in 1965 mm-hmm. or 1970 when the ASUTS got formed, for example, and look at the field now. The only thing that hasn't changed is the length of education. Mm. The length of time, if you are in a baccalaureate program, you're doing four years, and Mm -hmm. you're actually doing two years of ultrasound. Yes. And if you're, you know, so you look at that. So how have we we done this? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to rob Peter to play Paul. You have to take out something in order to put something in. And it's a question of what are you taking out? And how when I first taught I used to teach I think I gave the students 75 80 percent of what they needed to know and they were responsible for 20 percent mm-hmm. I now doubt that it's 50 50 mm-hmm. because where am I going to get it in yeah how am I going to test it yeah. you dump more and more onto the student yeah. to be responsible for mm-hmm. and um you go to uh, slides and PowerPoint and so on. More and more, you hand out the the the, the handout, yes. and that leaves the student because you're already insulting the amount of time you, you you're demanding of them. So you kind of make it more palatable by handing out the the pictures, and they can write their own words. But before they yeah, this was on overhead projectors, and you had to sit there and write it out. And so you, you, you were time limited, mm-hmm. and we're still time limited. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think you have to make trade-offs. 
of what you teach and how much the student has to then be responsible for. And if you're going to do that, then people are going to be more inclined to take things like ergonomics and make the student responsible for that, yeah. or take um, you know other sort of ancillary type of information as valuable as we think it is. It doesn't rise above the latest technology that just came through the door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, if it persists, you'll find that not in ergonomics, but in the commercial world finds ways to get around it. Mm-hmm. In other words, if there aren't enough sonographers being produced with enough uh, capability to understand the equipment and how it operates and be more um, creative, mm-hmm. they take that around and give you something automated So, because you're not capable of, of handling the raw signal, so to speak. You've yeah. got to have it... Yeah. You know, smooth for you or something. Or the calculations come up on the screen for you or it's a press button. You know, I mean, you look at this and you think, God, you know, well, we don't need to train them to that level anymore. Mm -hmm. Are we ready to take monkeys and train them? I don't think so. But, um, you know, it's getting close. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, they take the knobs away, you know. All you do is turn it on, put it over, then you get yes. back to the scanning yes. arm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, scanning arm was was very artistic. Yes. You, you really had to. That was a skill. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, patient. I mean, and patient care is something that you can that that isn't as easy to teach because everybody, I feel like, is either naturally more inclined to be better at patient care and with people mm-hmm. and some people are more that that's a difficult thing for them well i have some problems with i have problems with hospitals and institutions that hand out um surveys at the end of the oh, did you enjoy your study mm-hmm. um this is a client not a patient i i have a bit of a problem with that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because i think we're getting people to think of going to the hospital for a test Mm -hmm. should be as enjoyable as going out to lunch absolutely and um instead of focusing on the out yes and i found that um the people in in hospitals that are working in they they say they're sorry about a dozen times in your presence oh i'm sorry i'm sorry yet i'm sorry and you think what is this When you're saying you're sorry care, yeah. doesn't doesn't <laughs> yeah coming coming for enjoyment and coming for care aren't yes. do not always yeah. always match up yeah. um, um, but it, yeah, it does seem like there is some type of relationship that you have to keep in balance of, of the patient feeling like they're cared for and mm. not that they had a fun experience but that they got good care yeah you know, they had people that listened and had people that were sensitive to their situation, but at the same time mm-hmm. were there to do their job. Yeah, well. there's, there's a lack of professionalism yeah. is occurring. And, um, you know, I, I just see, I see that having been a patient mm-hmm. recently for yes. a long time. Yeah. I think, goodness gracious me. Now I'm going to throw a hypothetical question at you, but if you could pick five topics all around the globe, all over the world, regarding sonography to discuss what do you think your top five would be or what do you think has to make that list? I think um, a defining of the role 
of the sonographer, because um, in many countries, the sonographer is the physician. It's not, not a non-physician um, position. I have always accepted that the person holding the transducer is making the graph with sound. They are the sonographer, regardless of what their degrees are. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we should have some sort of minimum knowledge base that these people have to have, no matter which country they're in. Mm -hmm. But medicine is practiced in many different ways in, in the third world and all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and the resources to support the diagnostic effort is also very different. Yes. There are countries that don't have pharmaceuticals to treat what they can diagnose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no way to, to avoid that. There's no way to take somebody from uh, a country that doesn't have those resources and fly them to a country that does. And yeah. I mean, we hear of this sort of thing happening, but it's, it's, it does happen, but it doesn't happen across the board in all cases. Um, so what the defining role is from, from country to country, yes. how they differ. And what, and how they can use the information that they get from the tests that they run mm -hmm. within the limits of what they can offer. Mm -hmm. um, how can they maximize that? Mm -hmm. um, I think would be... That's a good topic, yeah. Yeah, important. Yeah. Um, and I think of all the modalities that I'm aware of, ultrasound is one that gives you the most information in the least amount of time and, and effort and cost. Mm -hmm. So that makes it a very attractive third world uh, uh, modality yeah. because you get a, a, a lot of information from, a, from, from that. Um, and Poland is the person who's gone to Africa and has opened the first baccalaureate university program okay. in sub-Sahara Africa in Ghana and she's just being honored this week for that's the, fascinating by the a ACR yeah um and she has graduates they've passed the ARDMS exams and and so on so yeah she's yeah. made a tremendous contribution to that country in that yes. particular area yeah. both Nigeria and Ghana yeah um and she has done this all on her own time and her own dime. I mean, it's not some somebody's paying her to do mm -hmm. this. She mm -hmm. and she gets up at three and four in the morning now and does uh, electronic communication with her students there and stuff. Yeah, she's a great lady. That's great. Um, I think <laughs> take the politics out of life. <laughs> yes. Get rid of the make medicine strictly medicine and cut out all the the politics well it comes down it comes to everything it's from how much space you're allowed to do your work and how much I mean you know it's it's, it's in everything yeah. and um, so what kind of obstacles are affecting yes what are the obstacles that are affecting good health care okay. in that particular country For and, sure. yeah and the World Health Organization is mm -hmm. supposed to address this to some degree, but it's a big job. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's a lot of, yeah. lot of area to cover.
so. yes and you know in some countries you have the haves and the have-nots and mm -hmm. you know in other countries it's it's everybody shares in the cost mm -hmm. of what it costs to deliver the health care and mm -hmm. it's, there's nothing wrong with variety it's just does it work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the bottom line yeah so what is the issue within the profession, in your opinion, that deserves more attention, that is mm -hmm. not getting the, the attention that it needs? Well, I suppose it's not surprising to hear this from me, but I would say the biggest issue I see affecting most, most sonographers is occupational injury and the lack of the requirement to be credentialed if you are practicing. So how do, you, how do you think these two, how do you think that people can help these become a priority for the medical ultrasound community? Yeah, I've been asking myself that question for more than a decade. Um, if I had, if you'd asked me back in 1970, when we founded the ASUTS, SDMS, um, would we be in the year 2017 not yet uh, you know, you, you require a, a license to do somebody's hair, but you can affect them with a, a modality that is very operator dependent, but doesn't have a need to be credentialed. I would have said you were crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but then I've been a part of trying to get us there for that length of time, not as intimately recently as, as before. And I'm shocked that we are apparently not able to um, achieve this. Um, and disappointed, it's not just shocked, I'm disappointed. Um, because a lot of it has been from physician-related um, opposition, mainly because they want their front desk clerk to do the ultrasound in an OB office, for example. Mm -hmm. And they don't want that taken away because they would have to pay more for somebody to do that. Um, it's disappointing. Yeah, so really it's continued fighting for the, the rights of the profession. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And where are these places that are doing these non-credentials? Because to me it wasn't even, it was maybe it was just because I went through CLU and, you know, so regimented, so, so accredited and... And then went in and it wasn't even, it was like, you, you graduate, you go to Edelman, you take your boards, and, and then you yeah. keep your CMEs up and there's no question about it. Well, so. it's not the sonographer that really controls, it's okay. the employer. Okay. If you can't get a job, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of a motivating factor. Um, and I think it's because um, in high-risk OB, which is what you're in, mm -hmm. um, you're not going to get hired if you haven't got your registries. Um, because it's there's too much risk, <laughs> yeah. um, but in a sort of everyday practice, yes. or so on, um, these are almost pictures for entertainment. Yes. Entertainment. Yes. I mean, they're more than they are pictures for pathology. Yes. Um, now that doesn't mean that something can't get missed and all the things that we know about that. But when you consider how many people get an ultrasound 
without any expected abnormality, yeah. it's sure. very high. Well, that's the first, the front line. You know, yes. The front line that is involved in sending us the abnormalities, yes. unless it's um, increased risk, then usually they see us first. But yes. Um, but they are on the front line, so in a way they're the most important to really know what they're looking exactly. for. Exactly. Yes. Uh, that's I agree with, and it's very unfortunate. That's. Do you see this more in rural areas or in, 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 in big cities just as much? Well, they like to throw that in so that that they can write the the exclusion that if you're in a very small rural area you don't have to play by the rules mm -hmm. but to be quite honest with you um, uh, I, I don't I think when you are in a rural area there should be even more um, requirement because it's you're going to in if you make a mistake you're going to it's there's going to be consequences and those consequences may mean that you overread and the person has to go many miles to seek sure. advice or you underread and they get into a problem uh, delivery or something yes. like this so uh, to me uh, to exclude the rural areas is not doing anybody a favor mm -hmm. um, I think you know you make a rule and you you, you hold to you it, hold to it. Yeah. Um, issue of Perry yeah absolutely. you know yeah um, I mean, would you um, like your mother or your father to go and have an ultrasound done by somebody that hasn't been at least proved to be entry-level competent? Yeah, absolutely not. You know? Well, we wouldn't want them to go to a physician that wasn't completely trained in through medical no. school either. No, that's so, right. Same thing. Yes. Yeah. So it's funny because when I first hear people not being non-credentialed, the first thing I think of, and and like I said, because I just have thought it was an automatic where we're from, is people operating 3D uh, entertainment type of ultrasound businesses, which now in Oregon, of course, is um, is not legal well. um, uh, for people to do. But what what do you, what is your opinion on um, any type of ultrasound that's not for a medical indication? Or taking time to do those during scans, which are low risk, just, you know. It's a hard one because, first of all, in order to sort of make a defense for, for not doing it, mm -hmm. you have to imply in some way that it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing this for many years and we haven't found the danger that we would need to, to justify it on that basis. Mm -hmm. um, if you're the consumer, mm -hmm. I was as guilty as any other future grandmother in wanting to see yes, those yes. pictures. <laughs> uh, well, I'll be honest. Um, so, uh, you know, I have to concede that there is, sure. but I would have gone into it knowing that this was an entertainment scan. thing and it was a scan and it was not meant to produce a diagnosis and anything else. But where the weak link is in that is, if I go in and have one of these entertainment ultrasounds, or my daughter yes. does, mm -hmm. and um, there's nothing found, it's a normal study, and it tells them whatever, say 15, 16 weeks, but then when the baby's born, it's not normal. Mm -hmm. What? Why can't I say that it was the ultrasound that caused the damage? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the vulnerability is, yes. is that something normal becomes not normal. And how do you exclude the beam itself from being the cause? For sure. For sure. So. <laughs> 
my own mother, anything that comes up with my kids. Oh, it's because you scanned them too much. Oh, it's because yes. you scanned them. Yeah. Even if I know that, and that's not that's not what's happening. Because well, there's a lot of other kids that aren't stenographer kids that have, you know, I know, issues, but, but the person with the right motivation, sure. you, you know differently, yes. and you were the one that yeah. did it to yourself. Yeah. But if you paid a large amount of money to have this little thing done for, for you, sure. you're not going to be too shy about suing for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think the field could... It, you, if you had a good lawyer and so on, it's going to take quite a bit for the field to prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt that it could it be... Yes, bio-effects. Because yes. mm -hmm. the bio-effects are not that solid. Uh, they're more like, well, we don't have any examples. You know, we don't... Mm -hmm. But then you could say, well, that's because you didn't entertain the person. Yeah, yeah. For, sure. for sure. Well, some of those entertainment scans can take an awful long time. Well, that's uh, my question. As a sonographer that tries yes. to get somebody a picture of their baby, even if they're here for a diaphragmatic hernia or they're here for a diagnostic scan, is I would yeah. like to get you a picture of your baby. I'm not going to sit here for 15 minutes and wait for the baby to turn his face towards me. No. Um, only not. I have other patients. I want to save my yes. shoulder and for other reasons and because of the Alara principle. Yeah, you know, I think you have to, to follow the Alara yeah, principle. For sure. And... Um, there are people who have walked the floor. They do all sorts of gymnastics to get this, these <laughs> yeah. pictures um, for entertainment purposes. For those individuals going into the profession of sonography, what qualities would you say are pertinent for them to have or build upon before entering the field? Um, they have to want to be a lifelong learner, and they need to um, embrace new things um, and go move with the field be interested in in continuing, continuing their education because mm -hmm. I don't think you ever stop learning in this field yeah the, the um, technology's moving too fast yes as well yeah. yeah you you can't be a dinosaur in ultrasound absolutely <laughs> if you consider all the places in the world where you have seen sonography practice mm -hmm. all the countries which particular country stands out in your mind as one of the most fascinating? Fascinating? Well, probably Russia and China. In Russia, uh, when I was there, it was before Perestroika, um, they wanted to diagnose, but they had no way to treat. And so that must have been very tough for those people that make the diagnosis but didn't hadn't knew there was no way to treat what they found and we were I say we there was a group of us about five of us um my husband was with us and um also some physician mainly physicians and myself and we were the guests of sports medicine and they were getting ready for the olympics it turned out to be the olympics we boycotted but anyway it was the olympics and they had some athletes they took their athletes when they were very young, six, seven, eight years old. And they, it was a great thing because they took the whole family in and took care of the, of the family and the child, basically. And they grew up being a gymnast or they grew up being whatever it was that they were going to specialize. Mm -hmm. 
And they had some that had sort of reached an early plateau that they didn't know why, and they were looking for a medical reason for it. And it was could be everything from, um, for example, a rheumatic heart disease, because they didn't do cultures on the throats of kids that got sore throats and strep, which to determine who got strep throat. And even if they did, they didn't have the antibiotics to treat them with. It's not because they didn't exist. They didn't exist in Russia. Mm-hmm. And so they got some that went on to rheumatic heart disease. And then when they started to stress their hearts really heavily and ready for the Olympics, they couldn't they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Short of breath and yeah. so on. Uh, and that's just an example. I mean, we found coarctation and so on of one of the athletes going all the way down to the kidneys. And I mean, that's something that in America, I think it's discovered in the natal Absolutely. ICU yeah. or wherever. But yeah. so uh, that was kind of interesting. But what was startling was the realization that once that was found, they couldn't treat it. And the person and their family were just released. That was the end of the, the gravy train oh, no. for that family. Um, so, wow. um, but that was life then. And what about in China? What about, you said that was in Russia, correct? That was in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, in China, um, internists do all of the ultrasound. Um, they do it like, and the patient has to pay, um, maybe only very little money, but for them, it's a very large amount of money, mm-hmm. uh, because they don't earn very much money. So... They do it by the organ. So if you have kidney problems, it's either your right kidney or your left kidney, but you only get one of them scanned. You don't get both of them you scanned. You pay, pay another fee to get the other one scanned? Exactly, yes. It's wow. by, by organ. By organ, and it's very fast. They do about 40 in the morning and 40 in the afternoon. Wow. And they go through, through how fast, and they have two physicians working together one is doing the scanning in the morning and the other one is doing the the, the knobology and the the actual they have very little paper products because uh-huh. they don't have a lot of trees yeah. in china yeah. so paper is of an issue so they hand write onto a little piece of paper what they see they hand it to the patient and that's it there's no other record just like a prelim yes and written. so if they lose it they lose what they just paid for um so, but they, then the physician scans it and then they, the next patient is kind of getting ready to get on the table while one's getting off and one's, I mean, it's really all fast and uh, that's how they they do it. They also um, have a lot of light coming through the, the, into the room. They have a, don't have dimmers and, you know, things like that, but they do have very, very good equipment. They have the latest sometimes even better equipment than we have here. And that's because almost all the ultrasound companies at one time or another were owned by a pharmaceutical company. And pharmaceutical companies have very good connections with China because that's where they do a lot of the te- early testing uh-huh. of their drugs. Uh-huh. And so they had prototype equipment. They also know, the commercial world knows that not too many visitors come through those labs. They put brand new prototype equipment in an American lab, there's too much traffic. Yeah. You can't keep it a secret. Yeah. 
but in China they can. And you said that because of that extra light and stuff, they have eye. They, they have, have eye issues. Uh-huh. Yes, significant eye issues. Do they seem to have any of the same shoulder ergonomic? Issues oh yes, they do. Numbers? Yes, and yeah. they use um, acupuncture as well as massage to deal with those, mm-hmm. as well as they use Western versus, you know, um, uh, medicine. That's yeah. interesting. Oh. So for their ergonomic, mm-hmm. um, yeah, they do a lot of ergonomics and yeah. a lot of treatment that way. And in fact, when I took the two delegations to China, mm-hmm. we stopped by um, these clinics in the morning and had therapy on almost all the sonographers that were with me were injured. And they had acupuncture, and they had ac- acupuncture in China done by the Chinese. And yes. Did they get a lot of relief? Did they feel relief? I think they had the relief when they were there, whether they got it back when they went home or not, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Unless you identify the cause of your injury, for you're sure. probably not going to get rid of it. Yeah, for sure. You're going to re-injure right away. Yeah. So, Have you ever tried? Has acupuncture worked for you? Yes. Yeah. Have you yes. had it done on your back as well? Yes, yeah. actually, yes, yeah. I have. Yeah, I've had sessions of acupuncture done and they were a varying success mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's interesting i mean i never thought about their what what is their relief you know look like in different countries you know versus i'm sure they do more i haven't been in yoga or, yes right, you know vice i haven't versa. been in um a country long enough to to you know to tell you what what it would be um yeah. although we did tai, tai chi one of our groups that went to china we had a great experience Everybody wanted to go in to see the Tai Chi. It was done in the park at 6 o'clock in the morning. And what this delegation, we all went in the what was called Yellow Bread. Yellow Bread was a taxi. Mm. And, of course, they didn't speak English. They had to make sure you had a piece of paper with the Chinese written. We started to walk closer and deeper and deeper yeah. into the park, and we saw these people doing Tai Chi and we were watching them and of course they immediately stopped when we got there and all stared at us. I mean, <laughs> we didn't exactly blend. And it's anyway, like, we got to this large group, fairly yeah. large group, and they were all in a line and they were doing it and we got behind them and copied them and they were laughing and clapping and, you know, large <laughs> crowds started to come out of the park and watch us. And then... Um, Jan Bryant, who's from Texas and a sonographer, she got in front of the line and did line dancing from Texas. And we all got behind her. We were doing the line dancing and the Chinese were copying us behind them. And it was, no words were spoken because nobody spoke each other's language. They didn't need to. They didn't need to. It was just amazing. And we took a few more steps into the park and there was a great big cement square. And in this cement square, everybody was ballroom dancing, as in foxtrots and and, um, so on, that type of ballroom dancing. And all the men that were on the floor came and took one of us women and took us dancing on this floor. This was sort of six o'clock in in China and the sun is rising, you know. And we just know that they went to work and said, you'll never believe what (laughs) happened in the park this morning. But it made our trip. Yeah, tell absolutely. You. So we're going to get into talking about your favorite subject, which is you. <laughs> so don't hold back. No modesty involved here. <laughs> when reflecting on all of your accomplishments in sonography-driven research, which are you most proud of? 
I think the accomplishments that I was most proud of were to get through the United States Office of Education and get actually um, create this, the, um, the occupation. Uh, and the reason for that is because it benefited so many people and it made it possible for them to go to school and to get federal monies to have loans and grants. Um, and yeah, I think that had the biggest impact on the profession. And it prevented, it allowed sonography to stand alone and prevented it from being pushed in with any other field, mm -hmm. um, which I think would have been detrimental to its growth because it's grown in all directions, in all different modalities. So that's what I... What about in your personal life? What are some of your most proud accomplishments? Um, gosh. I think that uh, I was able to have two kids and watch them uh, grow and become successful and uh, enjoy the, the grandchildren that they produced. Mm -hmm. I think probably that. So what would you say is the takeaway message from looking back at the history of the occupation and where we've been up until this point? Well, I think the takeaway message is, is to be sure you have a good grounds for everything that you want to do, that you have thought it through very carefully and you have bounced it off enough people around you to be sure that they agree with you and you have supporters before you go public. I have always said that I thought that the best way to run um, a new organization is to have a philanthropic dictator heading it. I mean that in the best way, because you have to be flexible and small enough to move quickly without a cumbersome large boards or multiple views. It's better to have a few fewer people and be able to work your way through the minefield that you run into um, and you don't have to get um, consensus from a large number of people. We discovered very early that it didn't matter what your background was. There was um, no other profession that always made the very, very best sonographers. Actually, the ones that we did think were the, some of the best were not in the field of medicine at all such as the graphic arts or the performing arts, seemed to produce the best sonographers. And they had not been involved in allied health, such as medical technology, x-ray, or other allied health fields. If, if there was going to be somebody 20 years down the line that I'm telling uh, you know, about Joan Baker and, and what her goals were, what she wanted her legacy to, to be um, within the profession of ultrasound, mm. Um, what what would you want? Wow. What would you want to be said about about your work and about your motivations and what you're leaving? Mm. I I just say that you know um, this new modality came into existence and there was a person that happened to be involved in it more by accident than by design and. Um, did whatever they could to uh, make it a part of diagnostic medicine and benefit all the people in the world that could, could benefit from it.
I get, uh, you know, that's, I mean, that was my motivation was just to make it available, get access, increase the access of it to, to those that needed it and produce people who could do it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do something, it's not worth much unless somebody can copy it. <laughs> exactly. You're only around for so long. So That's if right. you're the only one that can do it, yep. you better share it. It's not worth much. <laughs> Joe and I can't thank you enough for sharing all of your knowledge, all of your history, trials and tribulations, and successes with us. I consider it a huge honor for you to take the time out to sit down with us on your personal time and let us hear the story like only you can tell it. And I am happy to try and bring it to the rest of the sonographers in the world out there so they can hear your story as well. Everyone, thank you for joining us on this last episode. Uh, part of our part four interview with Joan Baker. I'd like to invite you to our next episode on the International Sonography Podcast, where we talk with Carolyn Coffin, uh, one of the owners of uh, Sound Ergonomics, and talk to her about musculoskeletal injury and ergonomics in the field of sonography. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>